You'll find on page 924 in the Bibles provided in front of you, those blue Bibles. We're in the middle of a series that we just came back to through this book. Uh, And hopefully we will be in it for a few months, maybe up until the end of the year, following the trajectory of Jesus' kingdom spreading through the early church. Now these days it would be hard to visit any major western city and in your time there not be able to find a Christian church. London, Sydney, Paris, New York, you could find churches that declare the gospel and the message of Jesus Christ the King there easily. Not to mention all the places you might go in South America or Asia or Africa. The global presence of Christianity today might leave the impression that it has always been that way. But that isn't the case. The humble beginnings of Christianity begin actually many thousands of years ago with a nomadic shepherd named Abraham. His ancestors do not become kings initially, but slaves to Egypt. They were then delivered by God, led to the land that is now being contested between Israel and Palestine. This is where Jesus of Nazareth, 2,000 years ago, a man and yet the son of God was born, grew up, and began teaching. Teaching that God's kingdom had already come and he was the one to bring it. He at that time was largely dismissed as a revolutionary by the current political powers and by as a heretic by the religious authorities. At their hands he was crucified. But after he was buried, he reappeared, resurrected, alive. And appearing to his followers, not as a ghost, but as they had known him their whole time with him, as a person. Eating and drinking with them, and for a few weeks after his death, Jesus explained in more detail how he would spread his kingdom through his witnesses. Witnesses who would carry his message of salvation all the way from Israel and Jerusalem... To the ends of the earth. For the first 15 chapters of the book of Acts. This kingdom expansion begins happening. In Jerusalem. And slightly north of Jerusalem. In regions like Judea and Samaria and Antioch. Momentum starts building. And building recently in the book. As Peter, Paul and the Jerusalem council. All together confirm. That God is in fact not just saving Jews. But people who live in the reaches of the earth. That is as it was known. Gentiles too. With this the known world is now wide open for gospel evangelism. And Paul the apostle is ready to take the open door. The rest of Acts will follow where he goes. At this point, there have been some minor interactions with the reigning political power of the day, which was the Roman Empire. 
which you've probably heard of. Israel happened to be geographically at the furthest eastern reaches of that empire and not at all important to Rome. But as you move west from Israel, you would have gotten closer in to the heart of the kingdom of Rome in Italy. The rest of Acts then, chapters 16 through 28, will mark Paul's somewhat circuitous journey that will take him all the way to the throne of Caesar. When viewed through the lens of Jesus' kingdom expanding, this is a fascinating story. And the journey west to Rome begins here in Acts 16. Let's read and pick up where we left off in verse 6. Paul is traveling with Timothy and some others. Verse 6 says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had gone up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. When Paul sets out to spread the gospel to the Gentiles, he apparently is not thinking about Rome. But that is precisely the direction that God will send him. Paul tries to go north, and by some mysterious way, God tells him that's not the way. So then he tries to go south and southwest. But by some means that isn't fully explained to us, God prevents that path too. And then in a vision, God tells Paul to go west by boat to Macedonia, to people who are waiting for his help. And notice by help, Paul and company understand they're to bring the gospel message to people who need it to be saved. So that those people might be brought under the rule of King Jesus. And as they make this journey to Macedonia, Acts chapter 16 records God's plan to establish his kingdom by using and disrupting the most powerful kingdom of the world at the time. The kingdom of God invades here the kingdom of the world. And God starts that conquest by saving three people in a Roman colony called Philippi. So the rest of my time, we're going to simply follow Jesus' kingdom expansion through these three stories this morning. Lydia, a slave girl, and a Roman jailer. One more note before we go on. Notice how God can guide us. We might not always have a vision. We might not hear audible words from the Lord telling us what vacation we should take next year. 
But notice that God can both lead us in restraining our plans and then constraining us to have other plans that meet his will. I wonder if you've seen him do that very thing in your life. So let's start with the kingdom coming to Lydia. The kingdom comes to Lydia. Look at verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Paul and friends face a little bit of a a conundrum. Maybe they, they get to Philippi and they ask, where do you go to talk to people about Jesus when there are no churches in town? Which was the case. No synagogues. This is a dilemma for Paul. They are so far away from the monotheistic roots of Judaism that there isn't even a synagogue. So he goes looking for anyone who might have some awareness of God by trying to find groups of people meeting to pray on the Jewish Sabbath. By the time his search is concluded, he has not found them on the streets. He's not found them in the city center. He has had to go outside the city and it is happening in the middle of a women's prayer group. God began overturning an empire, starting with women, prayer, and a simple gospel message. Humble beginnings are the instruments God chooses to exalt his saving power. You can count on it. That is good news for people like us who know we are weak. I also just want to commend you women for the important work that you are regularly doing by setting aside time to prioritize meeting together or alone to pray for the gospel ministry in this place. You have no idea how powerful that will prove to be in God's expansion of his kingdom in this church and beyond. Please keep at it. Lydia herself is actually not from Philippi. She's not a local. She's actually from Thyatira, which is... Funnily enough, funny enough, it's one of the places Paul was originally trying to go to in Asia. So God didn't want Paul in Asia because Lydia wasn't in Asia. God had a plan to save Lydia and then from there grow his church in Philippi person by person until one day the Philippian church will be ready and equipped to send the gospel themselves to Asia. The kingdom of Jesus grows one person at a time. Such is the electing love of God that he marks out each person by name and sends a specially appointed emissary of his to go and tell them about Jesus the Savior. And if you're wondering who to look for that God may have sent you to, I I just want to suggest that 
people who have been transplanted from their homes are often people who are desperate for community in the new places they live, which provides a very open opportunity for you to show Christ's love and invite them into the family of God. So if you're wandering around Kansas City or you're wondering about who to invest time in, look for people who have been displaced. Look for people who have been transplanted. Look for people who are away from home and family. I think God often creates a rich ground for harvest from the desperation that comes from being uprooted from community. Lydia becomes a citizen of God's kingdom through very ordinary methods here. God does at times do the extraordinary, as we'll see in a minute. But here, salvation comes through simple, straightforward explanation of the gospel. And the Holy Spirit opening Lydia's heart and mind to listen and consider the importance of what she was hearing. So if you're waiting on God to strike you with lightning before you'll pay attention to him. I want to suggest to you that maybe his way of wanting your attention is just being here this morning and hearing the simple message of the gospel. That we are all sinners in need of a savior. And the only way that we will come to know God, the living and true God, and worship him rightly is if he opens our minds and ears to hear of his life-giving news in Jesus Christ crucified and raised And we respond with faith and believe that he is the king and that our lives are due to him. And we gladly and joyfully follow him where he leads. Your role, Christian, in witnessing to Jesus is to give a faithful report of what God has done in Christ to bring salvation to sinners. Do not worry as you go about doing that. God never expects you or me to save someone. That is his job. God chooses. God sends. God opens the door. God saves. And the preaching of the gospel from your mouth and mine is the way he chooses to do that. The evidence that Lydia is a Jesus kingdom citizen is shown in her public allegiance to Christ through baptism and her love for Christ's people and hospitality. This is how the church begins in Philippi. One conversion, one baptism, one shared life. The same kind of thing we get to enjoy again this morning as John Massey comes and is baptized and we extend to him the hospitality of Christ to live with us and him and us with him. This is how we expect to see God's kingdom coming among us. Very ordinary, isn't it? Faithful gospel witness, baptism of believers like the one we'll witness today and a gathering of believers around the gospel and community. This is hardly a massive revolution that anyone around us will notice and applaud, but these are the tangible evidences that God is ruling and reigning in our lives and through us and spreading his rule in our world. And this is also what we expect the work of missions and church planting will entail as well. Sending people to areas where the gospel is less known or not at all. 
and seeking to faithfully proclaim Christ until the message goes and meets the people God prepares. Basic methods, slow work. It will require a lot of prayer and dependence on the spirit to guide us just like Paul, but enormously important work for us to be doing as a church. The beginning of the church in Philippi is so humble. And yet the global implications of what God is doing here will be huge. There isn't actually another place in scripture where this much explicit attention is given to the Roman Empire. It's mentioned three times in this chapter. Verse 12, verse 21, and verse 37. Luke mentions in verse 12 that Philippi is a Roman colony. Colonies were, the, were Rome's strategy for geographical expansion. So they would conquer a city and transplant 300 Roman citizens or so to that place to provide order and loyalty to the empire. These locations were strategically located along the coasts to eliminate Rome's need to maintain a navy. Notice that Paul arrives in Philippi by boat and without anyone noticing, he establishes an outpost, or you could say a colony of Christ's kingdom right inside Rome's power structure. And he does it not with Roman citizens transplanted, but with a foreign woman brought to Philippi through the economic trade channels of the Roman Empire. Rome thought that colonization would prevent invasion, but by the end of Paul's stay, a colony of heaven's kingdom will exist on Roman soil. The kingdom of God comes in power to Lydia. And through her salvation, the church in Philippi will begin. The kingdom also comes in Acts 16 to a slave girl. A slave girl. Look at verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, Turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So this girl is on the opposite end of the socioeconomic ladder from Lydia. Lydia has a name. We know her name, which in and of itself indicates that she had a place in society. This poor girl is only an object. For her owner's commercial gains. She's not only being extorted and oppressed by human masters. But by spiritual powers at the same time. The Greek words that you see translated spirit of divination. Literally means spirit of the python. Which places this girl among an occultic group of prophetesses. Connected to the oracle at Delphi. Who attributed their gift of fortune telling to the influence of a mystical snake. Paul gets harassed by this girl who's demon possessed for days. 
everywhere he goes, trying to proclaim and tell about Christ, his presence gets announced by a spokesperson for the forces of darkness. Now, why would an evil spirit take this approach? Surely it wasn't interested in people actually receiving salvation from the most high God. No, likely the strategy was to confuse people about the uniqueness of the salvation Paul offered. Or maybe to relativize God's position to nothing more than one of Rome's many gods. This is still the strategy of the evil one. Even if there are no occultic groups dedicated to snakes that you know of. Satan is very happy when people say they are spiritual. Especially when the spiritual has nothing to do with being saved by the one true and living God against whom we all have sinned. Spiritualism in its own right is satanic if it is devoid of discipleship to Jesus. Imagine being lit up with a desire to see Christ proclaimed as Paul was. Imagine being sent to this city by the Holy Spirit's unique direction in order to help people as Paul had been. Then imagine for a week or two or maybe even more, you try to talk to Jesus, talk about Jesus in this needy place to needy people, and you keep getting interrupted by a spiritual power trying to undermine your efforts to bring people what they need for salvation. I imagine this is what Paul was feeling when we read that he was greatly annoyed. Here he was. With freedom to offer people. And yet resident dark forces kept them in chains of their pagan worship. This is what it must feel like for our brothers and sisters. Who live as Christians in dark cultures. Where Hinduism. And syncretism. And animism. And Buddhism are prevalent. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for the liberation of Muslims enslaved to false worship of a false God. Pray for the liberation of millions of Hindus who venerate statues of monkeys and elephants. But this is also our experience in a secular materialistic society where people drown out the voice of Jesus with their clamoring for salvation by shopping or status or self-help. People living in the so-called freest country are not spiritually free because of their geography. So we thank and praise God in the midst of all this darkness. We thank him because he has chosen and has already invaded this dark world. And Jesus' light has already powerfully vanquished these enemies. So Paul... With the authority of Jesus Christ given to him. Speaks to the demon inside the girl. And before this king. King Jesus. The kingdom of darkness crumbles. It cannot resist. The spirit of the serpent. Is no match for the son of God. Who was sent and promised to come. To crush the head of the snake. And lead into freedom. All those who are locked in slavery. Under sin's curse. For those who are here and who are locked and enslaved in addiction. 
I recognize that your master may be a master you loathe, but is also a master you cannot get rid of. Your addictions are not merely or purely physical diseases. They are not pedestrian matters. These are shackles bound around your heart that are sucking out the life Jesus Christ has for you to live with him in freedom. And there is power in Jesus' name to be free today. You can walk away in Jesus' name from everything that enslaves you and never return. And there is support for you among Jesus' people to make that decision. Come clean. Tell Jesus you want his freedom. And tell a follower of Jesus that you want their help. We're reminded in this passage that human slavery is an awful thing. It is sadly true that in the United Kingdom and the United States, Christians were not too far long ago involved at times in buying and selling human slaves. This was a gross distortion of Jesus' ways and wicked. But notice that as you get closer to the source of life and encounter Jesus' apostles, you see genuine Christianity having the exact opposite effect. It is historically actually widely recognized that Christianity and those seeking to follow Christ's commands have had more of an impact on ending institutions of human slavery than any other force in this world. When the Lord anoints Christians with his spirit, slavery of the spiritual and humankind end. And this is why we as a church ought to be prayerfully concerned for the plight of human trafficking happening all over the world and even in our backyard. And if the Lord would lead you to be more involved, there are gospel partnerships that we would encourage you to link arms with. Even here, like Rehope, look them up and see what they're doing. To bring liberation to people sold into slavery. Or international justice mission in Washington, D.C. Seeking to go abroad into places like India to provide help and rescue. This girl's liberation from her spiritual slavery was likely the beginning of her human freedom as well. But even if she remains a slave to man, she was at her core a free citizen of the kingdom of Jesus. In that kingdom... All people are honored and known by the king. And even if they were poor and nameless and exploited in this life, they are loved and welcomed and cherished by him. Galatians three twenty-seven to 28. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. A rich woman and a slave girl, both founding members of the Philippian church. This is the diversity we expect to see around the unifying power of the gospel, even here. 
Now, if you had been sent by a king to begin an empire, would you have started with these two individuals? How tempting it is to expect the evidence of God's work to show up among the elite and the politically powerful of our society. But if you want to witness real power and occupy a place in Christ's kingdom, look inside the church that is preaching and believing the gospel. That's where you'll see miraculous power at work. That is where the lost are being found. That is where the slaves are being set free. And the kingdom of God is coming in power. The kingdom comes to a slave girl. And then thirdly, the kingdom comes to a Roman jailer. Look at verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Once again, the author explicitly highlights Roman customs in verses 20 and 21. Again, showing us the kingdom of Jesus undermines the kingdoms of the world. The owners of the slave girl care only about their profits, not about the eternal well-being of this child. Such is the way of darkness. To present people as merely objects for our own exploitation and personal benefit. The next time you are tempted to look at images that you shouldn't to let your eyes wander on the internet or elsewhere consider that by your participation you are agreeing that for your own pleasure another human life should be destroyed this is the work of Satan to tantalize us with the prospect of pleasure outside of God, only in the end to destroy lives made in God's image.
do we, the children of light, really intend to spend another second sponsoring this kind of darkness? If so, should we claim to be light? Listen to Ephesians 5, 7 to 14, and may the light of God's word eradicate the darkness we've wrongly hidden in our hearts. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you as I trust by his spirit. He will shine on our hearts to show us where darkness needs to go. And we need to invite his light. The irony about the slaveholders claim in verse 20. Is that they were, they were for sure lying about the immediate situation. Uh, Paul had not done anything illegal. But at the same time, they are actually accurately describing the greater reality. Paul wasn't doing anything illegal, as the end of the chapter will prove. But by bringing the gospel, the systems of the world are indeed being overturned. Freedom for the exploited. Selfish ambition turned to philanthropic charity as we see when, when people who are greedy become Christians and start giving away their wealth. Laws that promote human flourishing, a concern for literacy so, so more people could read God's life-giving word, to name a few. This is how the gospel undermines the institutions and darkness of the world. And as we, as we witness Paul getting brutally mobbed and beaten and imprisoned, church... Let's disavow ourselves of the notion that we can be a friend of the world and a friend of God. This is what the world did with Jesus Christ before they did it with Paul. Shouldn't we expect that in some way, shape, or form, they'll do the same with us, his servants? And yet for Paul and Silas, their suffering for the name of Jesus was their occasion for joy in Jesus. It's remarkable when you read the narrative, they get mobbed, they get brutally beaten, and the scene changes to midnight prison in stocks, and they are singing praise songs to God. I doubt any of us know how painful it must have been to have our bare backs receive not 39 blows from a hard wooden rod. That kind of agony would reduce us to groaning and no one would blame us for our complaints. I think that's what people would expect. Much like the prisoners in the cells around Paul and Silas, I think assumed they'd hear groaning coming from these two. Not singing. But instead, across the midnight air came songs of praise. And prayers for God's will to be done through their suffering. Where the unbeliever sees only discomfort or disappointment in trial. A Christian can see with spiritual eyes a gospel opportunity. 
from a Roman prison, Paul would later write to encourage the Philippian church that is beginning in this passage and say, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me in getting imprisoned has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers around me, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are now much more bold to speak the word of the gospel without fear. God did not waste their imprisonment. These men were not in chains for their wrongdoing, but to be a part of what God was going to be doing. By the miraculous power of God, the chains drop as easily as they were attached. The prison cells become open door hotel rooms. I love the precision of God's power in this passage. With an earthquake, we typically think of general sweeping damage. But notice that God uses earth-shattering power to specifically break open chains and prison doors, opening the way for these men to go free. Much like the earthquake signaling Jesus' death, pinpointed the temple curtain, opening the way for us to live with God. God can apply his almighty power to save a single soul. There is no barrier in your heart that he cannot absolutely destroy and yet have you walk out as a new and living creation. God will often reverse the order of things to show he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants to save. Look at the thoroughness of the magistrate's attempts to keep Paul and Silas bound in verse 23 and 24. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Every measure taken to make sure these guys don't go anywhere. And what good did it do? What good did it do even by verse 27? The jailer is now no longer carrying out the orders of the government. He is at the mercy of Paul's orders. He is no longer the captor. He has become the prisoner of the Lord who cries out for a way to be delivered. Friends, I know many of you have been pleading with the Lord to save your family member your friend, your coworker, your neighbor. And many of you have watched and feel like sin or deception or the world have the upper hand on their soul. Believe, believe that the Lord can turn the midnight into day in a moment. Have faith that he can quake any stronghold of sin in a split second. He can cause the false platforms of security to crumble underneath a person such that they immediately recognize that they need salvation. And God will have you endure and pray with patience and love so that you are there to answer their most important of questions. What must I do to be saved? And how beautifully simple the answer is. 
For desperate souls at the end of themselves like this jailer, all you must do is receive his cleansing for your rebellion and breathe out our belief in his salvation. This response of faith is all that Jesus calls for from sinners. His infinite power accomplishes the rest. In the Philippian jail, the prisoners become the liberators of the jailer. And the jailer hosts the prisoners in his home instead of the jail. The jailer nurses the wounds of the prisoners while the prisoners offer cleansing from the jailer's sin-sick heart. Look at what God can do. Only God can build an empire out of a prison cell. Christian, whenever you find yourself in the position of weakness, remember God's power can reverse that in a moment if he chooses to. And knowing that the choice is in his hands and that is not our responsibility can help us to be content no matter what we're in. Perhaps God wants your mistreatment by others to be the catalyst to save someone through your joyful trust in the Lord. Maybe your prolonged steady service to your unfair employer will result in their deliverance. Or God might just have you experience his comfort in your affliction so that you'll be the way to, that God brings his comfort to someone else who you walk alongside, alongside of who's experienced the same suffering you've already been through. I don't know exactly what he's going to do, but we do know that every trial he brings has a good purpose. Verse 35 to 40 give the conclusion. To this Philippian episode. Let's read it together. But when it was day. The magistrates sent the police saying. Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying. The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them. They've beaten us publicly. Uncondemned. Men who are Roman citizens. And have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. God's kingdom invades. And while initially and futilely resisted by the government, even the government is brought to heel by God's authority. According to Roman law, the magistrate's unjust treatment of Paul, the Roman citizen, deserved a severe punishment against them. The unjust judges are now at the mercy of the just one, Paul. Paul could have turned them in. He could have quickly pled the cause of justice. Instead, he accepts the apology and offers forgiveness. Instead of retribution, Paul sees an opportunity to promote justice that will hopefully lead to a church free to worship in Philippi. And in Paul, we see a picture of Jesus Christ, the king. He came the first time. To suffer at the hands of his accusers, knowing that by his unjust death, 
he would satisfy God's justice against us. He did not demand retribution, but offer forgiveness from the cross. And even from heaven in some places on the earth, Jesus now is acting as he has been doing here for a couple hundred years, turning human governments to protect religious liberty. But even if we one day are locked up for our faith, one day we can know for certain that the kingdom of Christ will be vindicated. When King Jesus returns, the poor in Christ will see the good news they've hoped in. The bodies groaning under sin's bonds will escape their prisons. Our eyes will be fully opened and we will walk out of this passing kingdom into his just rule that will last forever. And on that day, there will be no empire standing except his eternal kingdom. King Jesus has already invaded our world with power. Now we can be free. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for what we see of your mighty rule in this passage. The effectiveness and reach of your power to save. And it gives us hope. Lord, we see the reality of suffering as we walk Christ's path. And we pray that be able to endure it with patience and joy. And that you would use it for the salvation of others. Lord, we thank you that there is no power, no weapon, no government that can stand against your kingdom expansion. We praise you that our hope and confidence will not be disappointed. That you, King Jesus, will return for us, your people. And you will walk us into a new and better kingdom where we'll enjoy your life with you forever. We look forward to that day and ask that you would help us to be faithful preachers of the gospel until that day. In Jesus' name. Amen.